In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Do let us know if the sound is any better. Sorry about that. We really don't know what the problem is. It seems like we should have a working recording of this if you can't hear, and you'll be able to listen to it later this week. So I have to say that after six months of a global pandemic, I'm in better physical shape than I've been in my whole life, or at least in the last decade or so since I started working instead of being in school. Like many people, I've been working from home on a fairly strange schedule this year. For most of the spring, I'd usually get up around 6.30 in the morning, get a cup of coffee, bring it into bed with me, and start answering emails and working on sermons and things until around 8.30. Then I'd spend a couple of hours with Murray so Alice could go to class or get some work done. And we'd spend the whole rainy month of April trading off between wandering around the wild wastes of abandoned Cambridge in the rain and logging onto Zoom for meetings and for classes. With libraries and coffee shops and playgrounds closed, going for a run together was one of the few leisure activities that we had, and we were in luck because Murray, for the first time in his two years of life, finally enjoyed the running stroller. And so Alice and Murray and I spent most of the spring running from place to place with our stroller, discovering that a two-year-old makes an inspiring, albeit rude, track coach. I want you to run faster, over and over. All this running ended up being a little bit of a spiritual workout as well, or at least an unflattering look in the spiritual mirror. It was fine when Murray and I were running together, although it can be a little trying to tell a long story about Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin in the Hundred Acre Woods while also pushing a stroller while running with a 30-pound toddler in it and around 15 pounds of groceries in the bottom. But when all three of us were running together, the combination of physical exertion and six months together at home started to add up to some unkind and unhelpful thoughts. You see, when the three of us are running together, if Alice gets too far out ahead, Murray's solution is not for me to run faster to catch up, like it usually is, but to get down and chase after her while I push the stroller behind him. He, of course, is not as fast a runner as his mother, and so she would get ahead of him, and this was difficult and frustrating for him, especially frustrating for us when we would be two miles away from home on a rainy day just trying to get back for some lunch, trying to convince the toddler to get back into the stroller even though he wants to run in the street because, as he says, I am a car. This kind of thing would happen more than you'd think. Inevitably, we'd go down off of a curb to avoid some walkers, or we'd take a sharp turn, and suddenly Alice would be 20 or 30 feet ahead of me. And I would think to myself, inevitably, once again, I can't believe this is happening again. Why can't you just wait for us a second instead of going on ahead? Why does nobody ever care how I feel? This is, of course, absurd. But it's also the nature of marriage, of family life in general, I think. How many of us do this? How many of us keep a running tally in our heads of all of these nickel and dime offenses, of all our credits and debts to one another's? I cooked dinner. I took out the trash. I cleaned up the Legos off the floor. You did the dishes. You did the groceries. You did not wash out that peanut butter jar that's been in the sink for a week, and therefore, so our human logic goes, 
you do not love me, at least not as well as you should. I think these kinds of petty resentments are exactly the sort of thing that Jesus is talking about in the parable this morning. Jesus tells a story of incredible grace and incredible stubbornness. It's a story of one person who forgives 10,000 talents of debt in gold, $6 billion today, more or less, and of another who refuses to let go of, of a few hundred denarii, say ten or $12,000. The king decides to settle his accounts, and he calls up everyone who's in debt to him, and he says, pay me what you owe. These are huge amounts, and his debtors can't pay him back. And this one in particular begs for forgiveness and patience. Give me time, he says. Give me time, and I'll get the money to you. The king does something even better. He doesn't just give him time to collect the money to repay the debt. He forgives it entirely. But this servant, this debtor, is so caught up in his own panic in the situation that it's almost as though he doesn't hear he seems not to understand what the king has said, because he then goes to all of his debtors, to everyone who owes him money, and he tries to collect it so he can pay back this huge debt to the king. And then when his debtors ask him for time, when they ask him for patience, he says no. Now, maybe nickel and dime is the wrong term, because $12,000 is a lot of money by any account. But compared with the grandiosity of the king's $6 billion debt relief, it's absolutely meaningless. Say the king hadn't forgiven this debt. Say he demanded that his servant repay it, and the servant went around to all his debtors to shake them down, to try to gather up enough money to pay that debt back. At this rate, he would never make it. It would take 500,000 of these nickel and dime repayments to settle his account. And here we are, all of us who keep balance sheets in our heads, tallying up how we've been treated by our parents or our children or our friends or our spouses. Here we are counting up a dollar here and a dollar there, while off to the side, hardly noticed, is the hundred million dollar debt of love we owe to each one of them. Here we are holding on to decades, sometimes generations worth of resentments and grievances and missing the ordinary grace and kindness that rests at their foundation. Here we are, fellow servants of one loving, gentle, caring king, to whom we owe everything we have, in whom we live and move and have our being, so committed to our grievances and our pet peeves, so caught up in our panic and our shame that we seem not to hear the message. Your debt is forgiven. You cannot repay it, but you don't need to, and especially not like this. To gather up 500,000 little debts would be the labor of a lifetime, and what a wasted life, because your debt has been paid off already. Most of us, of course, most of the time, aren't literally trying to collect money from our friends and family. When I talk about this balance sheet, you know that it's about something else, but it's hard to pin down what it is. It's not duty or even kindness, or love. I think for me at least, it's really about who is in the right. If you're anything like me, you like being in the right, not just being right about something, but being in the right, which means someone else is in the wrong. It's a satisfying feeling because if you're up on the scoreboard, if you're in the black on the ledger of life, it means you can feel good about yourself because at least 
you're doing better than them. At least you're a better spouse than your spouse, as we all are. At least you're a better member of the family than your father or your mother or your child. At least you're a better friend than that person who only calls you when they need something. And so we gather up the coins of this righteousness, hoping that they'll be enough for us to be eternally in the right. Hoping that it will be enough for... For what? To be honest, I don't really know. I don't really know what I'm saving this all up for. But I know that I could never spend them anyway. One of my favorite sections of the Psalter comes in Psalm 49. We can never ransom ourselves, the psalmist writes, or deliver to God the price of our life. For the ransom of our life is so great that we should never have enough to pay it in order to live forever and ever and never see the grave. In other words, we owe our lives to God. We owe every good thing, every moment of love to the all-loving, all-giving spirit who sustains our life. We can never pay enough in this debt to have earned our eternal life all on our own, to pay off the ransom of the grave. Most of us are actually pretty good people, although flawed. Most of us do more good than we do evil. Most of us commit more acts of love than we hold on to grudges. In the balance sheet of life, most of us have a pretty healthy nest egg for our spiritual and social retirement. At least we do as long as we ignore that incredible debt to God. Because once we settle all our accounts with one another, some of us may be in the black and some of us may be in the red. But compared to the incredible debt that we owe to God, even the lives of the most inspiring saints aren't that different from the rest of us. And I thank God for that. I thank God because that means I don't have to feel ashamed to hold on to yet another grudge. I can just try not to next time. I thank God because it means that however petty I may be, however flawed I may be, I'm ultimately no better or worse than anyone else in the grand scheme of things. And the corollary, however good I may be, however loving and caring I may be, I shouldn't be too proud of it because I am no closer to paying back my debt. I'm no closer to buying my way into God's good graces. And that's the thing about grace. You can't buy it. It comes for free. Well, this is my last morning with you. This is my last Sunday here, my last Sunday sermon. Tomorrow I'll have the day off, and then I'll set off on a new voyage to cross my own Red Sea, hoping the waters don't crash in all around me. Or at least to cross I-95 and not come back out this direction for a little while. I love the theme of forgiveness, and so I thought that instead of another goodbye sermon, I would preach a forgiveness sermon. But I do want to leave you with one parting thought for the church. Jesus' parable isn't just about our own private lives. In fact, it's primarily about the church. It's not just about our own relationships with family or with friends. It's about our relationships with one another as this church, but also as a larger church and as a world of human beings. Last Sunday's gospel was about how the church addresses wrongdoing or conflict within its ranks. Today, Peter asks how to extend forgiveness in the church. It leads to some good and theologically grounded advice for any church leader or member, lay or ordained. Peter comes to the question with a kind of realism. He asks, 
If another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? But a better, albeit a little more literal and wooden translation, would actually go something like this. How many times will another member sin against me and I will forgive? Peter's not imagining pie in the sky. Peter's not wondering whether it will ever be the case that another member of the church sins against him. Peter is assuming that life in the church will be full of pettiness and disappointment and resentment. How many times, he asks, will I forgive? How many times will I hear the same complaints? How many times will I make the same suggestions? How many times will I sit through the same meetings and let it go? And Jesus answers him, not just seven times, but 77, and still only a fraction of the 10,000 talents worth of gold that God has forgiven you. So my prayer for us all, as I leave here, is that we might recognize this gift, that we might see the signs of this grace, and that we might extend that grace to others by the power of the Holy Spirit, to our families, to our friends, to our church members, to our neighbors, even sometimes to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.